It's another grand blessing, isn't it, to be able to come together like we are tonight. As I look over the audience and certainly appreciate also the meeting that was held at 4 o'clock this afternoon, the enthusiasm, the fervor, the ardent spirit that's alive and well here at Pippin, it's just an exciting thing, isn't it? Because, of course, we're the family of God in this location, and we look forward to being together eternally, don't we? As we think about the characteristics of the Word of God and the great deal of consideration it allows us to develop in a positive way, you might have noted tonight a very, very short lesson text. Only four words in that verse that Brother Wendell read in our hearing just a moment ago. I'd like to ask you to think about a lesson built around that verse tonight. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 19. These introductory comments, I suppose, at least are intended on, on by my part to set the stage or at least develop in us some thoughts as to the motion or movement in regard to this little seemingly innocent-sounding verse. Quench not the Spirit. As you well know, as you and I look at the Word of God, there are a whole host of passages, the meaning of which is very evident. You look upon it and it's clear what the God of heaven intended for you and me to glean from that verse, at least in the main. But there are also some verses that are much more challenging. Verses in which the context isn't always as obvious. That fact doesn't change the fact it's the Word of God. All Scripture is given of inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And so even those texts that are a bit more challenging are still good for you and me to consider. They are wonderful fodder for great improvement in our faith. You'll notice in those last verses, "...study to show thyself approved unto God." a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and that coupled with that text of Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I hope then tonight as we give thought to this little verse that we'll be encouraged by it, we'll be motivated by it, and in fact we'll be edified as we give thought to the sweet lesson of a verse like this one. Let's begin like this, shall we? You'll notice on this next slide, it would do us well, it seems to me, to at least give some thought to the context, the overall picture of 1 Thessalonians, in which this verse is found. Probably, as you and I are well aware, one of the main pre presentations of 1 Thessalonians has to do with the second coming of Jesus. The folks in Thessalonica were a bit perplexed. Some of them were even confused. They were a bit misled, apparently, by this false letter that someone had forged in Paul or another apostle's name. And Paul wrote to them and said, I never said that. I did not send a letter stating that the Lord's second coming is imminent. Rather, he wrote this book of 1 Thessalonians, in which, through five scintillating chapters, he sets before them the truth on these matters. And as he discusses the second coming of Jesus... It raises its lovely presentation in every single chapter. Look at chapter 1, verse number 10. When on that occasion, Paul says that as Christians, we wait for the second coming. We wait for the coming of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse number 19, One more time, you, he said, will be my joy when Jesus returns at the coming of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 13, one more time, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in chapter 4. Verses 13 to 18, a somewhat more extended passage, and yet he still presents what to you and me has so often been a passage of such beautiful moment. There, didn't he tell us, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are already asleep. For he says, when the Lord comes again, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And they'll do so with that marvelous trump that is heard. And they'll do so with the sound, of course, of that voice of the archangel. You and I know so well that the New Testament teaches Jesus is coming back. Now the fact is, chapter 5 puts it like this in verse 2. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And thieves don't send over a phone call or a message saying, I'll be over at 10 past 11. We don't know when he's coming. But we know for sure that he is. As Paul thus uses this First Thessalonian epistle, and as he in fact put before them these wonderful thoughts, you and I are going to come to chapter 5 then tonight, the very last chapter in this book. And could I ask you to notice in verses 14 to 18, or rather 14 to 28, he closed the book with some very powerful daily admonitions about what it means to think about the second coming. Although it's true that you and I don't know when it's going to be, that means we have to live every moment of every day to make sure that we're ready no matter when the coming will be. What's involved in that? Let's listen as Paul tells us, beginning in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'm sure it is a very impressive thing to each of us as we give thought to the host of things that Paul just stated. Often the sentences are very short. Pray for us. Rejoice evermore. Quench not the Spirit. The sentences aren't lengthy, and yet when you and I recall it in some of the other New Testament books that Paul wrote, the sentences are very elaborate and lengthy. When, when the book of Ephesians began, the first 14 verses are all the same sentence. What a long presentation and a continuing marvel of truth. It isn't so here. Paul apparently had in mind the thought to get to the heart to the, of these brethren with some very short, Nuggets of truth, things that they could instill within them and use on an ongoing, regular, and continuous basis. 
As you look at all those things, I've asked you to notice, you clearly can divide them into several categories. I've chosen to just look at them as positive versus negative. Look at all the ones that have a positive thrust. Verse 14, by way of commandment, he says, warn the unruly. Those that aren't living right in light of the second coming, make sure you warn them. Make sure they understand your love for them so that they can repent and make proper change in their life. Comfort the faint-hearted. There are some who are just having a hard time. Their burdens perhaps are great. You comfort them. You offer to them that which the marvelous wonder of Christian fellowship makes available. Not only that, support those that are weak. Those that are weak in the faith, don't you put stumbling blocks before them like we studied this morning. Rather, you support them. You provide a foundation on which their faith can grow as you live a proper godly example of the Word of God. On down the list, you'll notice a whole host of others. Be patient. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Be a thankful person. Finally, abstain from every appearance of evil. Pray, greet, and read. All of those are so challenging, but aren't, aren't they very encouraging? Look at the negative ones. The ones in which he has said, make sure you don't do this. Do not be vengeful. That was taken from verse number 15. Don't you render evil for evil? If someone, in fact, acts in a very unbecoming way to you and me, it is not our lot to take vengeance. That belongs to God, Romans 12, 19. Not only that. Do not despise prophesying. In that day and time when it was so amazing to consider the opportunity of the gift of prophecy, Paul says, don't you ignore it. Don't neglect it. But I believe, as we'll see in a moment, it seems as though that verse 2 may have a different thrust than what we might have thought. But then there's one more. One more time, Paul said, don't do something. In verse 19, it's don't. Quench the Spirit. For the remainder of our lesson tonight, might we ask, what did he mean by that? What's the Holy Spirit's emphasis and thrust in a passage like that one? Well, as we close that slide, let's do that by asking the implications as we think about the placement of 1 Thessalonians as well as other remarks in the New Testament that will be of great assistance to us. The first thing in order, what about the wording that's there? Let's study that for a moment, please. Quench not the Spirit. I would ask you to notice the verb that Paul utilized on that occasion is the verb zenumai. And that literally means to extinguish or to put out. We can appreciate that not only as we look at a Greek lexicon, of course, but look at the other ways in the New Testament that that word is used. It's used six times, and I have chosen just half of them, just so you could appreciate something as you and I study it together. In Matthew 25, verse number 8, Jesus was on that occasion telling that very memorable parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five of whom were foolish. We each remember how that developed. The time came that the bridegroom was coming, and the foolish ones said, Our lamps are out. Give us of your oil, as they said that to the wise ones. 
But you'll notice the comment they exactly were making. Give us of your oil for our lamps are extinguishing. Same Greek word as Paul used here. And you and I know well what it means when a lamp's oil runs out, its light goes out. That's what it meant to extinguish. Look at that text in Mark 9 verse 48. Jesus on that occasion was giving us a description of that place called Gehenna. Hell. And on that occasion, He said it's a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Same Greek word is used here. Now there we know the fires of hell, they're never going to burn out. They're never going to be extinguished or put out. Finally, in Ephesians 6 verse 16, Paul there used the word again, but you and I remember he was speaking about the shenanigans of the devil And he spoke about the capability of quenching his fiery darts. And you and I do that, of course, with a shield of faith. Is your faith strong tonight? Is mine strong? For the devil is hurling these fiery darts at us, and aren't we interested in having the ability to quench them? As you and I see all those verses in clearly, here we're appreciating that Paul was talking about extinguishing something. The verb tense, you'll notice it's imperative. Second person, and it's active. I say all of that to say that means this is a commandment. This isn't left in the realm of option. It isn't left in the realm of otherwise consideration. This is a commandment just as needful for those in ancient Thessalonica as it is for you and me today. It's important then that you and I quench not the Spirit. As we look more thoroughly then, I suppose we still have some good questions before us. So we've learned that the verse appears to mean exactly what the language suggests, but now let's go further. So literally, how could one quench the Spirit? What Spirit is he talking about? Well, you'll notice the word pneuma is the word Spirit in Greek. And in the other places in the First Thessalonian letter, when Paul used that word, he meant the Holy Spirit the third member of the Godhead. That only seems to thicken our consideration, doesn't it? How can a person like you or me then quench the third member of the Godhead? How could they in ancient Thessalonica have done this? Apparently it was possible or Paul wouldn't have written this. The questions, it seems, perhaps come to these at the bottom. I believe we'd all agree that The Godhead, all three members thereof are exceedingly powerful. After all, they're God. They're far more powerful than we. How can you and I extinguish the Holy Spirit in some way? Well, may I suggest to you, could this be a reference to the miraculous gifts available in the first century? Is in some way this was a consideration that touches that somehow? If not, then what else is it describing? May I ask, let's look at the miraculous spiritual gifts first and at least ask, does that seem as if that may have been what Paul was describing? In 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 7, reference is made on that occasion to those miraculous spiritual gifts. And one by one we find a listing of nine of them as that listing is given. You'll notice that it's prefaced by the statement, so very clearly that these are manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit was the one making this possible. 
The Holy Spirit was the one who was enabling individuals to enjoy the benefit and blessing of these spiritual gifts. So, as you and I notice other passages like Acts 8 verse 14, we remember there again those miraculous gifts by the laying on of hands brought us to appreciate that it was a powerful work of the Spirit. One final time in Acts 19 verses 3 and following. We recall there that one interesting question that was asked by Paul. Individuals who had been baptized, he said, Have you received the work of the Holy Spirit? They said, We didn't even know, we hadn't even heard about the Holy Spirit. And Paul immediately knew that their knowledge was, inac- it was inadequate and insufficient. They were rebaptized. You'll notice Paul also laid his hands on them and they received that miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. To say all of that is to say there's no question that in the first century these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were something that those brethren and those individuals were able to enjoy by the laying on of hands. I've asked you to notice the only way in the New Testament that that miraculous measure was distributed was in fact by the laying on of these hands of an apostle. Notice it didn't come just because a person was baptized. An apostle had to lay hands on in order to translate and transmit and convey these. And you and I remember that's what Simon wanted to buy in Acts chapter 8. And Peter quickly stated that is not the way this is done. Maybe in the next point you and I would be quick to say, the New Testament lifts high the banner of these spiritual gifts for the first century. It was a great thing in the first century church. However, could I ask you to notice? It seems as if that is not the major thrust of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. Why might we say that? We say that for the following reason. In this text, Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. But yet in 1 Thessalonians, he told those brethren, or rather in 1 Corinthians 14 that they, in fact, needed to restrain the activities of the Spirit in light of tongues and in light of prophecies. Remember, he said, if there isn't someone to interpret tongues, then all the tongue speakers need to stay quiet. In other words, they were to hold back the aptitude relative to that passage or relative to that particular work. And we know the Bible does not in anywhere contradict itself. So surely the major principle behind this text is a little bit different at the very least than having reference to this miraculous measure. And I believe before we're finished tonight, we'll all agree that the meaning is in many ways far richer for you and me today because those miraculous measures have long since passed. You'll notice in light of that, the other major lesson that comes, as you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, brings us to note this. Did you notice that listing that I asked you to consider earlier? All of these features in 1 Thessalonians 5, things like warning the unruly, things like praying, things like, in fact, greeting those that are, that are coming to your assemblies, every one of them was something that had nothing to do with a miraculous measure. In terms of not taking vengeance on someone, that doesn't have anything to do with a miraculous measure. A common Christian in any age could do that. May I submit to you the same thing's true of not quenching the Spirit. 
there appears to be no reason to suspect that this had particular reference to the miraculous measure. Every one of these are things intended for all Christians for all time, certainly including you and me today. Not quenching the Spirit, you'll notice at the bottom. There's something remarkable, of course, that occurs when you and I obey the gospel. Jesus spoke of it so well as he addressed Nicodemus in John chapter 3, didn't he? He said, a man must be born of water and the Spirit. And at the time of baptism, the water component is so easy to appreciate. But of course, all of that takes place as a result of what the Spirit commands in His Word. The Word of God, of course, was prompted by or made available to you and me by the work of the Holy Spirit. As all of that takes place, maybe we're inching then much closer to appreciating not quenching the Spirit. Let's, in fact, develop it more thoroughly like this. What about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? That is to say, given the fact that you and I as Christians are immersed into Christ, we're baptized into Him, and we're told that the promise of the Spirit then is ours. We know that does not enable you and me today to work miraculous gifts. That passed, and God promised that it would. In what way does the Spirit then dwell within you and me today? In what way are you and I intimately connected with the Holy Spirit? Many have asked then about that indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. I suppose as you and I think with some care about that, maybe these verses come before us. The first thing we'd say, there's no question from the New Testament as to in some way the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Too many verses have reference to it. In Acts 5, verse 32, there early in the book of Acts, it is directly asserted that the Spirit dwelleth within you. In Galatians 4, verse 6, and Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, just to name a few, the dwelling of the Spirit in the Christian is very clearly taught. The question then becomes, in what way does the Spirit dwell in a Christian? Is it the literal third member of the Godhead in you and me. That'd be an interesting thought to think that God somehow is inside you or me. Literally, personally, absolutely. But might we say, it seems as though it's easy to see those verses by themselves do not demand that conclusion. For after all, to say the Spirit dwells in us, how many times in the Word of God do you and I appreciate the fact that the mode in which something happens is not always given in the very same verse? Could that be true here? In other words, the Spirit dwells within us as Christians, but we aren't told in those verses how He dwells in us. Could it be that the agency by which that indwelling occurs is specified in other places? Could it be that by properly dividing that word... You and I could see that very clearly. May I ask you to notice that at the bottom of this slide, there are some additional thoughts, it seems to me, that would be worthy of our consideration. We've spoken about the third member of the Godhead. What about the other two? Are there ever any verses that speak of God the Father dwelling in us or God the Son dwelling in us? May I say to you, the answer is yes. In 1 John 4, verses 12 and following, Colossians 1, 27, 
as well as Romans 8 verse 10, we have passages that identify there is in a way the indwelling of both God the Father and also God the Son. Now I believe we'd all be quick to say, surely God the Father is not dwelling in you and in me personally. Surely it's the case that God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is not dwelling in you and me personally. Could it then it be that all three members of the Godhead are dwelling in us by way of an agency or a mode that is separate and apart from the personal, literal indwelling of God within us? That seems to be the only possible conclusion. Let's look even further and notice if you and I are then are quick to accept that God the Father and God the Son do not personally indwell within us, why should we think that God the Holy Spirit dwells within us personally? These indwellings of the Spirit and God the Son as well as God the Father, isn't it true that they dwell within us by virtue of the medium through which they teach us these things? What do we mean by that medium? What do we mean by that mode or that agency? Some thoughts on this slide perhaps will take us in that direction. Could I ask you to notice these interesting thoughts? Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 17. Would you note that passage with me? Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 17. On this occasion, as Paul was speaking about the nature of the marvelous wonder of the love of God... He said it like this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So if we stop right there, that verse then teaches that somehow Christ is dwelling in you and in me. Is that a personal, literal indwelling of the second member of the Godhead? I didn't finish the sentence. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That verse in no way teaches that there's this literal personal indwelling of God the Son, but rather that Christ dwells in you and me as Christians, and He does so by faith, by the embodiment of the faith which you and I have in light of the obedience He's taught us and our conviction and our obedience to that. You'll notice in Romans 10 verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So in this instance, Christ is dwelling in you and in me by virtue of our attention to and our obedience to the Word because that's where faith comes from. And Christ dwells in us by faith. Putting those two together, we thus see that Christ dwells in us in a very beautifully illuminating way. A way that casts a spotlight on our attention to the words of truth. When you and I live that which is the last will and testament of Christ, it can this be said, Christ dwells in us. And that's by no means a claim that He literally dwells in us like some kind of ghost or some kind of apparition or some kind of force that would remind us of the current movie that's so popular. Isn't it true that we also can appreciate Colossians 3.16 in this vein? You and I so often give thought to the power of a passage like that one. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. One more time, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Aren't you and I thankful that we have the word that is able to dwell within us? 
The psalmist so long ago had stated in Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. When we hide that word within us, and thus we live a life correspondent to that word, it can thus be said that some of these next things readily follow. Since the Holy Spirit was the author of that word, we know that because of 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved them. It is He who superintended the writing of this book. And so as we follow it, it is in that way that He dwells within us. Could I also ask you to notice, there seem to be many occasions in the Word of God when the following conclusions are evident. Would you notice them near the bottom? Many times what is accomplished through the agency of the Holy Spirit in one passage is in another passage that same benefit is said to be the result of the Word. Putting those two together then, that would suggest then that the Spirit is indwelling when the Word does. Look at just a few examples. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, the Spirit gives life. But in James 1 verse 18, it's the Word that gives life. Which is it? Is that a contradiction? That's not a contradiction. It's just that the Spirit dwells in us through the reality of the Word. Consider another one with me. What about the blessedness of salvation? In Titus 3 verse number 5, in James 1 21, on one occasion it's said to be the agency of the Spirit. The other, the agency of the Word. Which is it? You and I see no contradiction there. It's just that that Word was penned by the Spirit, and hence it is through the agency of the Spirit manifested in the Word that you and I appreciate the marvel of that indwelling. As you'll notice at the bottom, what about sanctification? In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we find sanctification is a direct blessing through the indwelling of the Spirit. But in John 17, 17, that sanctification comes through the Word. Now, which is it? There's no contradiction. It's just that to say those things is to say that the Spirit indwells the Christian as that Christian, of course, imbibes and sets forth the Word in his or her life. Let's look at just... Another example, if we might, top of this next slide. As we consider then the matter of the Holy Spirit, we've learned so far in our study by looking at these passages that the indwelling of the Spirit is so readily taught, but it's not a personal, literal indwelling. He indwells, of course, through the Word that He has given us. And He indwells through the blessedness of all of that which He intends us to obey. No wonder then, as you summarize all those things, I would ask you to look at that list of passages at the top that help us see that it seems difficult to harmonize a personal, literal indwelling of the Spirit with any of them. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. When Peter was discussing with Cornelius, we remember on that occasion that here Cornelius had fallen before him. And, of course, Peter corrected him, Stand up, I myself am also a man. But when he arrived at verses 34 and 35, 
He said, of a truth I perceive, God is no respecter of person. In every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That seems to suggest then, remember, that in every place where that word is found and folks are obedient to it, that's the place then where God is well pleased with that which has taken place. Look furthermore at Romans 2 verse 11. God is no respecter of persons. When you and I think then about this indwelling of the Spirit, I hope that's a very motivational thing for you and me. When you and I study the Word of God and we order our life in compliance with it, in that sense, the Spirit dwells within you and me. That's the mode or the agency through which that indwelling is occurring. As you look at all those things, it's time to come full circle. Paul said, quench not the Spirit. If he wasn't referring to the miraculous gifts, and it appears that he wasn't, he must have had reference to that ongoing indwelling of the Spirit as a Christian would manifest the truth of God's Word by the way he lived. To the Thessalonians, it appears that Paul said, let your life be becoming of a Christian. And whatever talents that God has given you and the Spirit has made available to you, make sure to use them to the glory of God. Whether it's supporting the weak, whether it's being fervent in prayer, whether it is the considerations of helping those that are weary and fainting, make sure to use your talent. Make sure to use your ability. Make sure to use the skills that God has given you. And don't ever quench the Spirit. The work of the Pippin congregation, you and I want to make sure it flames broadly and widely so that God's work is fervent here. That'll only happen if you and I quench not the Spirit. Each and every one of us are unique individuals in that regard. You've got talents that I don't, and perhaps I have some that you don't. But God gives to each one that which is in accordance to His will. You need to do the things that God has allowed you to do by way of talent and potential because I can't do them. He hasn't given me that particular ability. And the same thing, I need to do that which I can because He may well not have given you that capability. When we use our abilities, doing what we can, when we can, for the glory of God, we're not quenching the Spirit. May we strive individually. And may we strive with great urgency in our own personal lives to not quench the Spirit. As we come near the close of our lesson this evening, I would ask you to conclude it with some of these observations. Whatever thy hands find to do, do it with thy might. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 reads, in 1 Peter 4 verse 10, we're expressly told that as the stewards or ministers of God, God see, has seen fit to provide for you and me that which you and I would call talent in accordance to His will. Don't we remember that in Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about talents. There was a five-talent man, a two-talent man, and a one-talent man, and although those had reference to amounts of money, the lesson seems clear enough. Whatever it is that God has given us, make certain that we use it properly. Don't ever put it beneath a bushel like we learned in terms of influence this morning. But may we quench not the Spirit. 
as we close that slide and close this lesson, it seems to me important to remember that on several occasions in the Bible, whenever one does proceed to quench the Spirit, the blessing that corresponds to it is removed. What happened on those occasions to the various individuals that had talents? Didn't Jesus say, take the talent from him and give it to another one? He lost what he had. If you and I quench the Spirit, perhaps does that teach to us that that capability will finally wane away? It may well be lost in time. How tragic that would be. Tonight, are you quenching the Spirit in your life? Are you withholding the talents and the capabilities God has given you? Are you using them in the wrong way to the wrong glorification? If you are, then why not turn that around and quench not the Spirit in light of using it to glorify God? And if we could help you tonight by maybe praying to God for the restoration of you as an Aryan Christian, we'd be happy to do that. You need to repent and confess those things, of course, and we'd be honored to approach God on your behalf. Maybe there's a person here, though, who would like to become a Christian. An individual who, to this point in life, has left the sacrifice of Christ at a distance. You have often heard that Jesus loves you. Maybe you've even thought about it every now and then, but you've never acted upon that. Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight if we're to please God, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. If tonight we could, in fact, assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel, you too need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His marvelous name, and be baptized. If you do that, you too will then be in Christ, and you can begin your walk faithfully and thoroughly through life, and come the time of death, you can go home to glory. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, we would be so delighted to assist you. Why don't you come if that's the need of your life and do it now while we stand and sing?